Hello, I'm Mary Ito, and welcome to the CRAM Podcast. CRAM is an acronym for Communicating Research and More, which is what we try and do on this podcast. A lot of exciting research and groundbreaking ideas never reach the public, but they have the potential to change the way we think and act. Do you feel that there's a general anxiety that's been on the rise in our society, especially among young people? Many seem worried, unsettled, even fearful. From my own experience, speaking with young people in their teens, and even those into their 30s, they worry about a lot of things. School, relationships, jobs, money, their health, the economy, the environment, global instability. They worry about their future and the future of the planet. I'm sure my friends and I had worries when we were young, but I'm not sure our worries were as many, as broad, and perhaps as consuming as they are for today's young people. And if you think this is a problem that's coming out of the pandemic, not so. Anxiety and other mental health problems have been on the rise in youth for some time. What's been going on and what can we do? Dr. Joe Henderson is a psychologist, a clinical psychologist, and director of the Margaret and Wallace McCain Center for Child, Youth, and Family Mental Health at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto, and they join me. Good afternoon, Joe. Good afternoon. Well, I would love to get your point of view as a researcher and a doctor. What are you seeing? Absolutely. Uh, in your intro, you referred to increasing levels of anxiety and depression pre-pandemic and through the pandemic as well. And, and that's absolutely what we've been seeing. And how, I mean, just how long have we been seeing this rise in anxiety? And I, I'm assuming that, I mean, it's not just Canada, it's North America, maybe beyond, I don't know. Yeah, it's true. It actually has been uh, a global phenomenon where there, we've seen shifts in the mental health concerns of young people, including adolescents and young adults, as you referred to. Um, and really, you know, the past decade has seen in Canada, for example, increases in emergency room presentations amongst young people, um, increases in uh demand for uh, services. Uh, so really, you know, concerning um, uh, state of affairs for, for young people here and, and elsewhere as well. Yeah. Can you give me examples of how um, this actually sort of manifests in behavior? Like what, what, what have you noticed? Well, young people are reporting really high levels of distress um, and, and, sort of overwhelming sense of stress, um, difficulties, and, and a certainly um, post-pandemic, we've seen even increased difficulties with uh, uh, engaging with school, feeling comfortable, um, uh, feeling, uh, especially post-pandemic, you know, feeling connected to peer groups. Um, young people report feeling a lot of pressure, pressure to perform, pressure to be perfect. You know, a surprising number of young people have said to me that they have no intention of having children, that that is, you know, not something they're going to consider for their future because the future seems bleak. Now, so can I ask you, can yeah, I stop you with sure. that? Because the first time I heard that, I was startled. And 
It's not that I was startled that a young person said, well, you know, I don't want to have children because I've known people all through my life who didn't want to have children, but it was different. They didn't want to have children because either they said, you know what? I don't really like young kids and I don't think I'd be a good parent. And it was more that. What I was hearing from young people, and these are young people who are friends of my children or I work with them, it was, I like kids. Like, I love kids and I I would like to have kids, but I won't because of the conditions of the world. Now, I don't know if this is new. It, I, I was startled and I was sad when I heard this. Absolutely. And when we think about, you know, we can think about sort of mental health along a continuum. There's mental illness, mental health and wellness. Um, and, and we think across that sort of spectrum, we know that hope and optimism are, are really important for mental health and mental wellness. Um, and what I hear when young people say something like that to me is a real diminished sense of hope and optimism about the future. Um, and when they're connecting that to their own mental health and mental wellness, I think we have to pay attention. Yeah, I'm wondering. So when people feel, and especially young people, that kind of anxiety, what can result from that? Well, I think lots of different things result from it. Um, you know, when when young people are faced with uh, anxieties around things over which they feel very little control, and in fact, you know, really have very, very little control over climate change or global, mm -hmm. global conflict, um, it can be very difficult. Uh, but we do know, for example, and, and some of this is from emerging evidence in the context of um, uh, thinking about how to support people in the context of climate change, that action, engaging with others and engaging with action can have positive uh, impacts on mental health. Um, and, and so one of the things, you know, a, a conventional approach to anxiety is, is sort of like to overcome your fear. And that's, that's useful if you're afraid of spiders or flying or, or even like school performance. You can sort of tackle those things when it's something big like climate change or global conflict, you know, that, that requires a different approach. And so really engaging with young people, supporting them to become leaders, supporting them to take action, to connect with others who are like-minded can have really positive effects. That's very interesting. I, so I, I almost get the sense like instead of um, focusing inwards, you actually focus outwards, action and helping others. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. Put it. Yes. Why, why would, do you know why that would be? Why that would make you feel better about things? Well, What's there's going a few, on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's a few things. We do know that behavioral um, engagement, like, and this is true regardless of um, uh, sort of what kind of mental health difficulty you're tackling. One of our most common um, uh, approaches that have been shown to be effective is something called cognitive behavior therapy. And, and so there are really multiple pieces to that. There's how you think, how you feel, but there's also how you behave. That's the B of the CBT. Um, and so we know that behavioral engagement, like actually doing things, can help you feel differently. It can help you think differently. You can think of it as a triangle where each thing affects the other. In this context, 
we're, we're thinking about sort of taking action, engaging in a behavior. It's not going to have an immediate impact on yourself or your context, like maybe, you know, fear of spiders would, but it, it's having a broader impact. And then you're pairing that with um, the social connection. We know that a sense of belonging, a sense of connection is also important for mental health. So when you're pairing this kind of like engagement where you're feeling that bit of productivity, you're seeing your behavior have impact. And this is like a, a longer term impact for climate change, but you're seeing others appreciate it and you're connecting with others um, that that has positive effects. You know, it makes me think of some other discussions I've had about what gives us a sense of happiness. And I've been told that it's strongly connected to some sense of, of control. And we talked earlier about how th these things make you feel out of control, right? Because you can't control climate change. You, you know, you can't control a lot of these big things. But that happiness is connected to some sense of control and a connection to others. And so then what you're saying to me seems also related to happiness because like if I'm going to take an action then um, I'm connecting to others because I might be working with others, but also would there be a sense of control involved there? Because I'm responsible for my own, I got, I'm making a voluntary move to, to do something. Yes, for sure. And, and, you know, thinking in terms of fulfillment as well. Um, right. Sometimes I get a little bit worried about the emphasis on happiness because mm. that, especially for people who live in really challenging kinds of day-to-day contexts, that uh, is a pretty privileged sort of, uh, you know, thing. Yeah. Um, and, and so sometimes it's, it's uh, being able to feel fulfillment, a sense of connection. Um, but that, in, that um, sense of like you do something, you get positive, like you engage in a behavior and it results in positive feedback. Or you might see small changes that happen at your local community level. Or you start to see growing momentum across a broader, um, a broader region or, or, or a domain of interest. And, and then you start to feel that sense of like, oh, maybe I, I have a bit of power here. Maybe I have more power than I thought I had. I yeah. can contribute more than I thought I could. I really like that you brought up that aspect of happiness and that, and, and privilege. I never thought about that, about how happiness is or can be, can be connected to privilege. Can you just talk about that for a second? Well, I think it's part of a, you know, a broader stance that comes from trying to think about equity and inequity every day. And some of the assumptions we make about, I don't know, about what we expect and, and, you know, sort of really situating myself and thinking about young people. Yeah. So teenagers and young adults and what we expect of them and how we, we set, we sort of set expectations that ignore that many young people live in really difficult um, circumstances and so when we communicate to young people, like they should be happy, this is yeah. a great time of your life. You should be happy. Right. You should be resilient. Like, yes, things are hard, but you need to be resilient. 
Like, that's fine. It's important for young people to be challenged by things that kind of stretch them outside of their comfort zone and they find that they can, um, you know, overcome those challenges. They can cope. They have resources. They're strong. But if the context you're living in, the racism you face, the other inequities you face uh, are, are present in your day to day life, like that's not that's not about resilience. If you are burdened by that, if you are overwhelmed by that, that's not because you lack resilience. It's because there's a, there are inequities that exist. Um, and I've learned and I, I just want to say, like, I have learned this from young people. Like we work closely with youth, um, with all kinds of different lived experience to rethink how we do research and rethink how we design services to amplify youth voices. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a real privilege for me to be able to talk about this, but I just want to say like, these are brilliant ideas that come from young people who have, I have had the privilege to learn from. And so I just... Well, I have to say that. <laughs> no, you know what? And that's another great point you bring up because what now you've got what, me thinking, that's right. They're informing you and informing the way you do research, let's say about anxiety or depression or why they're feeling the way they do. And if we are putting happiness, I'm just using that as an example, but if we are putting happiness, let's say as a goal, we may be asking the wrong questions, right? In our research. And we, we may just be like making them feel worse. By yeah. putting some unreasonable expectation on them. Absolutely. And actually, I have a fantastic example of this because we were we were co-designing uh, what's called a randomized control trial. And so it's like this rigorous methodology for testing a new intervention, a new treatment. And uh, we were doing that with young people. And and now I sit um the Center for Addiction and Mental Health is a psychiatric hospital. Uh, it very much comes from a medical model. And the history of doing this kind of research would mean that the outcomes that you would look for would be fewer symptoms, that the number of symptoms would go down, or that maybe you would go from having a diagnosis to not having a diagnosis. But because we were co-creating this with young people, they said, like, no, that's not what's important to us. Those might be the outcomes research typically measures, but we want to measure meaningful outcomes to us. And so we were like, whoa, okay, tell me more. What does that mean? And so what, what we heard from young people is it's not changing from having six symptoms to three symptoms or something like that. It's about functioning. Can I get up in the morning? Can I go to school? Can I get a job? Can I connect with my friends and feel comfortable? These were the kinds of things young people wanted us to examine as our as outcomes of this rigorous research methodology. That's um, and so that's what we did. That's what we did. Yeah. And, and what they're saying is so practical. <laughs> it's so sensible. I mean, yeah, it's so sensible. That's right. <laughs> that, okay. That's, yeah, that's very, very interesting. You know, um, when we look at, I guess, some of the main factors, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about, but other main factors that might be contributing to this rise in anxiety, what would you say among young people? I think from 
um, we have evidence to show if we look at, um, you know, different aspects of mental health functioning, mm -hmm. if we look at suicide related concerns, for example, you look at um, connections, and this is sort of broadly in North America, like seeking support from uh, helplines, that kind of thing. There's a connection between um, what's happening in the school year and how young people are feeling. So especially when we think about young people who are connected to school, whether that's through um, secondary school, high school, or, or post-secondary, so college, university, um, we see connections uh, in terms of how they're feeling with as it connects to the timing. Uh, we see that both sort of very close at hand. So if you look at the days of the week or times where there are um, uh, holidays, but also when you look uh, at those bigger breaks, when you look at, uh, you know, changes in levels of mental health concern, for example, over the summer, uh, where we have a longer break in, in North America. Um, and, and so, you know, I think this fits with what I've heard from uh, young people in, in clinical practice as well about the kinds of stressors that are created by uh, a, an education system that heavily emphasizes performance, academic performance, and, and this real future orientation that's about like you have to achieve really high um, you know, grades in order to mm -hmm. have the most opportunity. Mm -hmm. And even now, like if you look at, um, you know, and this is from, I haven't looked at the research, there isn't research that's emerged from this academic year, but certainly in Canada, in um, media reports talking about how young people with with averages coming out of high school yes. in the 90s not getting access to the university programs they want. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. just stop and think about that. Like, in, in what context as an adult are you expected to uh, perform almost perfectly all the time? Yeah. It, so, and that you're, you're like, you're... Um, your reward, your compensation, whatever it is, yeah. would be tied to that level of performance. It, it doesn't, I think we have to question. Um, so can I, yeah, can I yeah. ask you, I mean, I, I think um, many of us who've, who've been through school, um, we all felt uh, a certain level or, or probably an increase in anxiety around exam times. And I'm not sure if that correlates with what you're seeing when it comes to exams, et cetera, or end of year and, and grades and all that, what would be the difference today though? Like why are anxiety levels so high today? Because, you know, we've always been tested. We've, it's always been based on performance in schools. What's different? I think the difference is the, the emphasis on um, top performance. So you know, the idea that you could have a, you know, an average of 92 and not get into the program, like it, that starts to be discussed in elementary school. In elementary school, they start talking to children about why they need to take school seriously. And, and of course, this is not every teacher. This is not every school, mm -hmm. but it definitely is out there. And, and interestingly, we had many young people who um, felt, you know, a sense of relief, 
showed improved mental health um, functioning over the course of the pandemic when they were um, no longer in some of the same school contexts. It's not just about the, the grades and the pressure and the performance. Um, it's also about a broader context. Um, and, you know, it's sociocultural, right? Like we yeah, have right. to step up and look at everything because yep. there's also like all of the expectations around like the social media and engagement and extracurriculars. And this is what you need to be able to be successful or, you know, all of these different pieces come together in a way that makes this developmental stage, which is already challenging. Like this is a stage where young people's bodies, brains, social world, everything's changing. And then you layer on top of that these complex sociocultural phenomena that just create a lot of pressure without the previous generation really knowing how to provide the right support in that context. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that aspect of it up because I was thinking that too. I thought, well, I mean, in, in many ways, isn't school uh, just a reflection of what's going on in the broader world, right? The competition the emphasis on performance um, and just, yeah, it's kind of like, well, you, you need, I mean, and even just in order to live, you need to make a certain income just to live. Right. And so you need a really good job that pays well in order to like, you know, buy a house and buy groceries and all that. True. But there are really good jobs and well-paying jobs, certainly adequately paying jobs that aren't necessarily going down the route that requires you to have a 95% average mm. to get into the program, right? Mm. Canada it's has amongst the highest rates of um, post-secondary university kind of engagement and considerably lower rates, problematically lower rates of engagement in the trades, for example. Right, right. But those have not been historically valued. Correct. They're not valued and that's, you know, it's bar part of this sort of uh, sociocultural sort of context where a very certain type of um, performance is valued over other types of performance. And I, and I do, I mean, you did bring up social media and, you know, we hear a lot about social media and social media um, contributing to kids' anxiety. Well, what do you have to say about that? I mean, is that part of all this as well, and that whole strive for perfection. Certainly, the data suggests that, uh, on average, uh, social media has a negative impact on mental health, especially for um, girls and young women and young girls. Um, of course, at the same time, you know, I, with intentionality, said on average, because there's certainly some young people. Um, and certain subgroups of young people for whom social media has been a really important connector. Um, if you live yeah. in a small community and you're part of a marginalized group, being able to feel connection to, to community through social media can be really positive for one's mental health. Um, but I agree, you know, that sort of performance and that real move towards individual um, individual sort of the priority of individuals over community um, is like, uh, you know, you really see that in, in North American context. Uh, so what, do, what do you mean by that? The priority of individuals over community? 
but just really focusing on an individual as, um, you know, uh, needing to outperform others, needing to outshine others. Um, and, and that really reflects, uh, a sociocultural context that's around individual success, individual performance. Um, and it is contrasted with other cultural contexts where collectivism is much more um, uh, the way of thinking about things. You know, ah, boy, social media and just, you know, spending a lot of time on your phone, um, you know, surfing, looking at uh, like all the different sites. It's, uh, boy, I mean, I hear everything from you know, well, we've, we've got to limit this with our children because, you know, parents may say far too much time on it. We don't think it's good. Not enough socialization, not enough, you know, getting outdoors, that sort of thing, or even stopping it. What would be your, you know, what's your, your suggestion or your take on that? Yeah, I think, um, I, I, I don't think there's really realistically any stopping it at this point. Um, this is, you know, in fact, we need to be um, uh, supporting young people to know how to engage with technology, with digital um, materials, with uh, social media as one form of that in ways that support their health and well-being. Um, and and we, we have to do that through, you know, education um, in school systems, but also like at home. Uh, Parents and other family members have a really important role to play, not just through the words they say, like the kind of words that you were saying, but also their own behavior. Um, like if you look at social media usage, it's not just, you know, it's not just people under 25 using social media. Um, in fact, it's their parents using it as well. It's, uh, you know, it's used broadly across business, academia, all kinds of different uh, contexts. Um, and so really it's, you know, how do parents model appropriate engagement with social media? What are they doing in terms of um, limiting the time, but also making explicit maybe what some of what happens implicitly or internally? So sophisticated users of social media who are um, resilient, I'll use that word, despite my previous comments, <laughs> resilient in the face of like the sort of like all of the content that comes in, you know, something goes on in their minds where they say like, oh, yeah, look at that, like yeah. that person, you know, like they're kind of doing some self-talk. Yeah. And yeah. they're contextualizing it. But if it's all internal, kids don't see it. And so part of what even for younger children, not just teenagers, but as soon as you're on social media and your children are accessing social media, really saying aloud some of those strategies that you use to dampen down the negative impacts of social media can provide a really important model for mm -hmm. your, your children, the children who are in your life. When you're able to say like, oh, I don't believe that, like, I'm sure that's, you know, uh, doctored or, oh, right, you know, right. I'm sure that there were a thousand other things that happened in that person's day to day that weren't so perfect or, you know, whatever the things are that help you to keep it in perspective, as as many would say, you know, say it out loud. So young people have access. Yeah, that's a good lesson for us, you know, because before we criticize our children, let's look at ourselves. 
because you know it's not just it's not just bad for them to be on it 18 hours a day it's bad for us too to be on our phones 18 hours a day so exactly. true do you know i i got to share with you too um i interviewed a developmental psychologist a, a while back who um studies lying lying in children um which i thought was very interesting he said it's totally natural it's natural for everyone to lie mm-hmm. um but anyway he said the same thing and he said you know it it's fine I mean, for parents to say, you know, to their children, um, you know, it's it's not a good thing to to lie on that exam or lie in this, you know, whatever. And then they turn around and their children see them lying. So he said, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> you know, you have to model that behavior. Yeah, exactly. If you're at the dinner table and your child's trying to tell you about their day and you're scrolling through social media, half half paying attention like your actions are way more influential than any words you're going to say to your child. Yeah. Um, it just, um, yeah, it's interesting too. just going back to education. I just remembered, I read this article. Um, it was by, it was by a Canadian university and they were saying that, um, this generation as a whole. So I guess I think they're referring to millennials and, and Gen Z. They are among the most educated, the most educated. Um, but they said that their path to success isn't clear. Does that resonate with you? Even and and you know many of us think too that oh my goodness you know and and you know especially if you know maybe your parents were maybe they were immigrants they didn't have that um, opportunity they wanted it for their children they wanted education and so we many of us think that education is the pathway to success. So if you know what I mean, so if that in and of itself is not true, what what's what's going on, right? Right, and of course, you know, um, they're like young people who leave school early uh, do struggle often down the road. So it's not that education isn't important; it is, but it's how do we define education? Um, mm-hmm. Can it be broadened? Can a a, a sense of education we value be broadened to include apprenticeships and other kinds of training programs. Um, I think that's one piece of it. And I think the other piece of it is we do have really high rates of um, engagement in university. And but following that, um, many young people struggle to get jobs and employment in the, um, the, you know, the thing they were interested in, in mm-hmm, university, mm-hmm. the path they took in university. And partly, you know, partly what young people will say to us is now university having a bachelor is no longer what yeah. will distinguish you from others. So now you've got to get a master's, you got to get a PhD, or you got to go professional, you know, lawyer, um, physician, what have you. Um, and those paths again, are fraught with competition. Um, and it's, yeah. you know, just sitting as a someone, I guess, who thinks about these things at the same time as we are saying, we don't have enough physicians. We don't have, you know, we, we constrain who can uh, pursue those paths right. by yes. setting the bar that's yes. very high. I mean, we um, could get into a whole other discussion, yeah. even among what we value among people with, you know, higher education. I, 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 when I think about um, the emphasis on the sciences, on STEM, right, which oh, that's fine, but I, I feel sad that it's at the exclusion, perhaps, of the arts, 
you know, that the arts are undervalued and they're often the first thing to go when cuts are made. Yes. Uh, so anyway, but I guess that's, that's a whole uh, other thing. When we but think it, about mental health, right? When yeah, we right. think about mental health and what brings um, fulfillment to young people, all of these things, the whole wide range of things, you know, whether it's engaging with physical activity, whether it's engaging with the arts, engaging with academic activities, engaging with social, recreational, just fun kinds of things, all of these things um, uh, bring richness to young people's lives. And young yes. people are very diverse. We need all of it, not not this narrowing. You know, you know what? Yes. And now I think um, just the other day, um, I heard a father say that the um, uh, band was cut from his school. And so they have like a hundred instruments there that are not being used. Um, no band teacher. And his son was so disappointed because music gave him such joy. And I think, yeah, that's, I mean, for, for enjoyment, for, for mental health, you know, I don't know too many kids who just run off and do math but they will go listen to music, you know? <laughs> for sure, for sure. Yeah. And if our schools are growing humans, as opposed to mm-hmm. growing um, post-secondary students, then we might not cut the band program. Yeah. Um, just talking about um, parents who, I'm assuming they are our first and, and most impactful role models. Probably, right? Yeah. yeah, for sure. Okay. So, um, yeah, I wonder about parents' role. And a lot has been written um, about this aspect of parents. And I, I think it's parents of a certain means, mostly. Um, but this idea that uh, with, the, with the current generation of young people, parents, many of them had this kind of um, tendency to, to protect their children. Um, they in a meaningful way. I mean, nobody wants to see their children hurt, but this kind of helicopter effect that's been talked about. Um, can you talk about that? Because I I definitely have seen that in my generation of parents, and I've read a lot about it. What's the upside and the downside of that? Sure. So <clears throat> it is important for young people to face challenges and to discover that they have resources, skills, um, ways of connecting with others that can help them overcome challenges. And and young people, children, youth learn that through, again, like not through hearing about it, but through doing it. So it's really important that young people have some, some, you know, space and time to engage with the world in ways that will challenge them, will present sort of things that might feel like they're going to be hard, and then they overcome them. Um, is it important for them? Is it important for them to fail when they do try? Yes, it's important. It is important to have times when young people um, experience challenges they can't overcome and, and, and experience that kind of uh, failure. I think the downside, or it's not a downside, I think the other side of it is, how do we balance that? If we, if young people are, um, like the rates of sort of, um, you know, extracurricular activity, competitive sports, all of these things, uh, the school system, as we were talking about, are all spaces where there are lots and lots of 
uh, opportunities to sort of fail. Um, how do we balance that? Because that kind of pressure uh, and being a sort of like um, pushed into spaces where there actually isn't a meaningful opportunity to be successful is also problematic. Mm. And so, you know, I have a ton of, um, I'm a parent myself. I have a ton of respect for parents. Parents are trying their best. Um, and, you know, and, and we all, you know, they're all different strategies and there are pros and cons with all different kinds of strategies. I think it also comes back to what's the outcome we're seeking? What's the goal we're seeking? Who decides what, what, effective or success success looks like for a child for a teenager for a young person um and that you know i think one of my questions i'll be curious is one of my questions about it would be like the explanation of children not not being as successful on what basis in what way because it might be the case that we have young people who are now more sensitive to others, mm-hmm. who are more responsive. Yes. You know, they, there may yes. be other strengths, but those strengths just may not be as valued in some of our that sociocultural yeah. context. Right? I agree. And, and you know, I, um, hmm. and may, I hate to say it, but may not be valued as much by parents because parents also are, I mean, are part of society. They're influenced by this whole performance and su- success aspect, right? And I can see, like, you you do want the best for your child. And so you think that maybe by protecting them, by go- and I can't tell you how many times I've heard this, by going and speaking to the school, even the university, when your children are adults, and arguing with the professor to increase their marks or to give them a break or what, they think they're doing their children a favor, right? Because it's so difficult out there. Mm-hmm. But in fact, are they? you know, by that kind of protection and what, what's the message they're giving to their children? Definitely. I mean, but the broader message is why, why, why is having high grades the thing, yeah. the goal, right? Yeah. But aside from that, and so if we step away from that particular context, young people do need over the course of development, greater and greater levels of autonomy. They need greater independence, not not in a sort of like me, me, me sort of way, but in that sort of opportunity to navigate different contexts. And when parents um, intrude, that can definitely be problematic. That can be, you know, that 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 is challenging for the parent-child relationship. And it's cha- it can be challenging for young people's mental health as well. If a parent isn't tuned to what a parent, their child, their teenager, their Mm -hmm. young adult wants, um, and you get that mismatch, that mismatch um, can feel very invalidating for a young person. It can feel very like, you don't have confidence in me. I should be worried. I should be anxious because I'm not able to do it on my own. So definitely where parents are acting in ways that don't align with, uh, you know, sort of um, uh, the child's perspective, we can, we can get into trouble there. Yeah. Um, you know, this makes me think too, because we're talking about parenting, what you said earlier about, um, happiness and it, it, it's very difficult to know. I mean, we, if we are to accept that 
perhaps our child is um, not happy, uh, and we we are, we want our children to be happy. That they're right there. There's a detention, right? Because mm-hmm. no no parent wants to see an unhappy child. And then if I'm to take that further, how do we know when our child is unhappy? And that's okay because there are a lot of issues our children are dealing with. But how do we know when that unhappiness is trouble? It's not. It's really not good. Absolutely. Do you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. very difficult yeah. to gauge these things. For sure. So one of the things is, um, you know, thinking about the con- thinking about your child's mental health or your teenager's mental health actually starts. Uh, at the same time when you're thinking about all of the other things about your child. So even when they're very young, thinking about really knowing your, your child as a person, having conversations with them, um, modeling, like I was saying before about social media, there's something similar in terms of mental health. How adults manage their mental health is a very internal process. So having, um, creating opportunities that are developmentally appropriate to sort of make explicit you know, oh, that was such a tough day today. I'm so glad I was able to, you know, whatever, positive coping. Mostly children see the negative coping, right? That's much more like when you lose your cool or you're engaging in like things that aren't so healthy. That's what kids see. So modeling that sort of internal dialogue, that creates opportunities for conversation. Keep that conversation going. Conversations about mental health, about feeling sad, about being fearful, shouldn't be special conversations. They're going to be they, the best is when they're a conversation that follows everyday conversation where you're, you've created the space in your home and your family for children to feel comfortable. Now, how do you tell the difference between sadness that is uh, a reasonable response to something that's happened versus sadness that is maybe a sign of something more problematic? really a few things we look for. How long does it last? Is this lasting for a really long period of time, much longer than than you would expect given the the thing that prompted it? Is it um, limited, uh, not to diminish it in any way, but is it limited to sort of like feelings or is it starting to impact other things? Are you noticing your child, your teenager withdrawing? Are you noticing them... um, uh, being really uh, like short or, uh, you know, not wanting to sort of engage in conversations or activities that they would normally enjoy. Um, and especially, you know, if you see them starting to withdraw from their friends or things that they really enjoy, that can um, uh, signal that there's something important going on. And then certainly like at, at higher levels of concern, you'll see uh, disruption in um Things like sleep or eating related behaviors, taking care of oneself. Um, and, and certainly, you know, if you have any concerns, but certainly if that's the level of concern, you want to reach out. Um, and there are lots of different ways you can reach out for support. Um, uh, and, and we would definitely, anytime a parent is concerned, really, we would encourage them if they're fortunate enough to have a family doctor, you can connect with your family doctor or talk to someone at school. If your child is at school, um, those can be a couple of first steps. And then we have lots of other services as well. But Anne, what about, what about young people who are, I mean, they're, they're not children, they're adults and many young people live away from home, right? 
They could be away at university. They could be finished university now. They're working. They're in another city, another country, and they're feeling isolated. I mean, this is so common, right? They're feeling isolated. They're feeling lonely. They know that this isn't good. Like, what can they do? What can they do for themselves? Absolutely. So being connected is really important. And so reaching out and making connections to your existing social supports or, or, or building social supports, that, that's kind of what, what can help keep you healthy. Um, but there, there are also, I think we have had a growing movement um, here in Ontario, in Canada, and also internationally around this sort of new model of supporting young adults, teenagers and young adults. We've kind of referred to it as integrated youth services. Here in Ontario, it's called Youth Wellness Hubs Ontario. And these are really spaces we're creating in the community where young people can connect. They can connect socially. They can connect for employment support, housing support, and they can also connect for mental health or substance use health supports, primary care, sexual health, those kinds of more clinical services as well. So really creating these spaces in community where young people are embraced for who they are, for their leadership potential, for the amazing attributes they have, and also creating those pathways to more um, more specialized mental health um, supports if needed. Okay, I didn't know about this. So these hubs, are, are these hubs like physical hubs or virtual hubs? They are both, um, but mo- like we have 31 physical locations across the province. Um, in communities across the province, these are, these are where communities have come together and decided that they want to support young people in achieving their best outcomes. And recognizing we haven't done such a great job of supporting teenagers and young adults to date in terms of mental health and substance use health support. So, yeah, it's a new Uh, model of service delivery. That's great. So are you saying that this is a growing thing? I mean, is this something that's happening in other countries as as well? It is happening in other countries as well. In Canada, um, almost all the provinces and territories, um, mostly the provinces, have been engaged and and, uh uh, the federal government has been investing both in research and and uh, other ways uh, in integrated youth services. And then outside the country, Australia has this model called Headspace across all of Australia and Ireland is called oh. Jigsaw. In the U.S., there are some some uh, similar uh, activities happening as well. Hmm. That's oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, you know, I want to go back to where we kind of started near the beginning and about hope. Um, so, you know, we can't change the world overnight. I mean, that, that's just not going to happen. And we're dealing with lots of serious issues, uh, climate change, you know, war, economic instability, et cetera. But I mean, so against that backdrop, how do we, and you, how do we give our children hope? Well, we have to inspire hope through, you know, most importantly, and you, and you mentioned this kind of off the top as well, right? That sense of connection, that sense of belonging, sense of value. And sometimes that gets lost in families. The burden of day-to-day sort of being able to do what needs to get done, we can miss opportunities to ensure that our, our, our 
people in our lives feel valued. So I think there's that. And then listening, listening and being curious. I mentioned before, like you need to get to know your young person. Um, and we notice like as young, as children, parents are pretty, you know, many parents are pretty good at this. They play with them. They're like, they're doing different things with them. But when they become teenagers, it's like we, we, we back away. Mm. And we really encourage parents to move away from, did you do your homework? Did you empty the dishwasher? To like, did you hear the news? What did you think of this? Tell me about that. What did you, you know, what's going on with your friends? What conversations are you having? What are they passionate about? And then how do you bring your resources, internal, external, whatever, to support them in engaging in that thing that makes them feel passionate? Because that's where hope will come from when they feel like they have a place in the world and can can have an impact. Beautifully put, Joe. And you know what? That applies to everyone, not just parents, not just, you know, teenagers. It, it really applies. That's something we can use every day with everyone. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for thinking about this important issue. That's Dr. Joe Henderson, a clinical psychologist and director of the Margaret and Wallace McCain Center for Child, Youth, and Family Mental Health at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto. Now, for more information about Dr. Henderson and their work, please check out our show notes. That is it for the CRAM podcast today. Hope you enjoyed it. Our thanks to the Temerty Foundation for their generous support. Please follow us on social. Our handle is at Cram Ideas at Cram Ideas. See you here next time.